Before we start the show, a quick apology. I had my audio levels set up incorrectly. So the first part of the show, I sound quite distorted. I do apologize. This show is sponsored by Koyeb.com, a developer-friendly serverless platform to deploy apps globally. Stick around to the end to hear more. This is Cup of Go for September 15, 2023. Keep up to date with the important happenings in the Go community in just 15 minutes per week. I'm Jonathan Hall. And uh, I'm Andy Williams. Hi, Andy. How are you this morning? Hi, Jonathan. Yeah, yeah, I'm really good. Thanks very much. What uh, have you done to be sit- Yeah. <laughs> I don't know where he is. I, I feel like I'm sitting in his seat in, in some sense. <laughs> Shai's out today celebrating a, a holiday. Uh, I don't remember which one, but uh, there's a holiday, national holiday in Israel. So he's off today. But we're really excited to have Andy here. Those of you who listen to the show regularly already know Andy because we had him on as a guest. Uh, I don't know. When was that? A couple months ago? Three months ago? Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it was uh, definitely a few episodes back. Yeah. Uh, but I've really enjoyed listening to everything in between. I love the show. And I've got my, my Brewster mug here as well. Uh, thanks so much for making one without the text on the uh, back. I, I snapped that up right away. Awesome. Uh, it's a great place to mention. You should go to store.cupago.dev and buy your own Brewster cup. But we have a ton of news today. And a lot of community-related news and a little bit less, some, but less of the technical proposal stuff that we usually talk about. Maybe we can jump in uh, with GopherCon, which is the big thing coming up in just a week and a half. Yeah, absolutely. So they're they're having it in San Diego this year uh, from September 25th to 28th. I was super excited to be going, but unfortunately it doesn't work for me. But I know they've got a huge crowd heading along. If you don't have tickets, they're still available. And if you're still making plans, I think they just extended the discount room rate at the Marriott through to the 18th of September. So if you're catching this really quickly, you might just get on the tail end of that and grab yourself a bargain. Awesome. Have you been to San Diego before? I have, yeah. I, oh, it's such, such a beautiful city. But uh, unfortunately, as I always seem to do when traveling somewhere from Scotland, we took the rain and a little, a little bit of adverse weather so much so that we felt at home, but the weather was on the news, would you believe? Oh, wow. Yeah. San Diego's a great city. I've been there a few times. Um, it would be a lot of fun to go to GopherCon. Maybe next year it'll be on my on my calendar. I'll see you there, I hope. Awesome. A little closer to home for, for us on this side of the, uh, the ocean. Uh, we also have GopherCon Israel coming up. It's a little bit uh, later, coming up November 2nd. Uh, of course, tickets are still available for that. If you want to go to Dublin, probably be raining there too. I don't know. But you can check that one out. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Ireland's a good place to go, whether whether it's raining or just a great place for drinking. I enjoy that quite a lot. And how's the drinking in Edinburgh? <laughs> the drinking in Edinburgh is is always excellent. And we're super excited to be able to have FineConf in person this year, going to be hosted in, in Edinburgh in the city centre. Awesome. Uh, we're doing a hybrid, so if you've previously watched online or you can't make it over there, that's great. Uh, but we're going to gather as many people as we can for the first time face to face. If you'd like to speak, um, there's a call for papers open through October 6th, I think. But just message me if you're thinking about putting something together or you're worried that the deadline's too close. We'd love to help people get over there. And there's a little bit of travel support as well to help people get there in person. It's just going to be a great opportunity to meet the community properly. It's really cool. So schedule a, a week in there for, for Ireland and Scotland. Go to Dublin and then Edinburgh the next day. Get all that you're filling a fill of go and drinking at the same time. Um, and Absolutely. You're you're putting on this conference. Are you judging the or, or is judging the right word? Are you selecting the presenters? What's your involvement in this? Um, yeah. So I'm I put put the call out there, um, and there's a group of us, the core community at Fine, are going to choose who's going to be presenting. But we're really interested in in any papers, really. I suppose talking about graphical app development with Go. 
Clearly, there's going to be a lot of fine stuff there. We'll be talking about best practices and latest functionality, the 2.4 release that just came out and things that we're working on internally in the team, but definitely looking for a mix of technical presentations by the team talking about what they're working on, but also people who are using the project, just sharing their experiences and what's been what's been good for them. So yeah, it'll be a great mix, actually. Lots of different things. And just to continue the drinking theme, we'll go to the pub afterwards and uh, and celebrate a great day. <laughs> Not to spend too much time on, on this particular conference, but I feel like we have an expert among us, so it maybe is appropriate. Uh, and also, uh, we had evidence from the last uh, Go developer survey that a lot of people are interested in doing desktop types of in, in mobile development in Go. Is it fair to say that if you're considering doing this, that this is the conference for you to attend, that you could get some great beginner tips and stuff like that? Absolutely, I would agree with that. I mean, clearly I'm biased because it's the project that I'm spending all of my time on. But you're right, there's, I mean, up to about 15% of gophers are doing some work on application development. And um, actually, between the previous Go developer survey and the one before, we, the Fine Project, joined with Gio to run a graphical apps developer survey off the back of it. And we found that there was a lot of interest. In fact, quite a few people who responded didn't actually reply to the main Go developer survey because they kind of felt that it wasn't for them. So there's there's uh, you know there's people outside of the wider community that don't necessarily feel that they're part of it because they're just doing apps. And there's still a bit of a tension about whether Go is for app development. So this is the one conference that stands out as being just for graphical development. So come along, yeah, learn more, see what it's all about. And we're obviously aiming for something that's just super simple to use. Uh, so maybe it gets you started and then you find other projects. It's all friendly community. It's wide, wide open. <laughs> On the other hand, if that's not your cup of tea for some reason, we have an alternative for you, right? Yeah, exactly. It turns out that GopherCon Singapore has, has scheduled um, that same day. In fact, overlapping with Ireland and FindConf in Edinburgh on the 2nd and the 3rd. So I guess if you're on the other side of the world, you can go to, to that one instead. I've not been myself, but I would love to at some point in the future. I'm pretty sure everybody's going to share their videos online afterwards. So so go to the one that's easier, perhaps, and, and catch up online. Good suggestion. And we'll, uh, we also have, also on the other side of the world, uh, the next week... Uh, November 8 through 11, if you're in Australia, and Singapore is just a little too far away for you, GopherCon AU is coming up. So that should be an exciting one. I presented at a, at a Sydney conference. Uh, it wasn't a Go conference, so I won't say the name. And I presented virtually, uh, but it was a great conference. So um, I've never been to Sydney, but I, I've presented in Sydney uh, for, for whatever that's worth. <laughs> That, that sounds amazing. I, I've only ever passed through that city, unfortunately. It's somewhere I'd love to spend more time. Uh, but it's such a long way from Europe, unfortunately, exactly. and it's difficult to make that trip um, for for a presentation or even for an excellent conference. You, you need, I think, a couple of weeks if you're traveling that far. Yep. Um, of course, if you are based in Europe um, and you're looking for something um, a little bit different to what we've proposed already, uh, don't forget GoLab, which is going to be in Florence once again. That's the 19th to the 21st. It's always a great event. And I, I quite enjoy it because it's, it's not part of the main GopherCon group. So you get talks that are a little bit different. I'm going to wave the graphical flag once again because they're they're hosting me and some other people talking about um, doing graphical things with Go. But you'll find a great mix of topics and also just a brilliant bunch of people who, who head over on their mid, mid-November. So maybe I'll see people there. Awesome. Well, that rounds it out for conferences uh, through the end of the year, perhaps. I mean, we'll bring these up again in, in the show as it, they get them closer. Um, but as far as I know, those are the last conferences scheduled for the year. Uh, you start to get the holidays after that. So let's talk about some of the more technical stuff. 
one proposal I wanted to bring up because I thought I just thought it was interesting. It has not been accepted yet, but I expect it will be. It's a proposal made by future show guests. We have a, an interview scheduled with him, so we'll probably talk about this in more detail in a few weeks. Joe uh, Tsai made the, the proposal, and the proposal is to add two new interfaces to the encoding package. You might be thinking encoding JSON. No, 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 not that one. Just encoding, that package that nobody actually thinks about but probably uses all the time for text and binary uh, marshalling. And these are performance-related, uh, as a performance-related proposal, uh, it is to allow when doing text or binary marshalling to allow an append-only operation that does fewer copies uh, or, or fewer allocations. So based on some of the data he's uh, found, uh, some benchmarks, this can drastically improve performance for certain types of operations. So it's a, an interesting proposal. I think it's interesting, and I even commented on it because I think it, it's a really ugly interface. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I think you're right. The performance is really interesting. If, if, we, can, if we can help people make stuff more efficient in, in that encoding space, it's going to be a big win. Yeah, yeah. So essentially, like the, the text appender interface, it's part of the proposal, uh, and the binary appender was similar. Uh, it actually accepts uh, a, a byte slice that, you're, that you, the, the implementer of the method, are expected to append to but not read. So it's like, here's, here's some private, potentially private data you shouldn't be looking at. Please don't look at it and definitely don't modify it, except in this specific way we're telling you to do it, which feels icky to me. On the other hand, there's already a lot of places if you wanted to be icky in the standard library and peer in on other packages of data, you could. So it's not really adding a new a new exploit vector. It just looks icky to me. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I think it relates to a topic from was it a couple episodes ago when you're talking about some security and, and how can you zero out values or make sure the data is not accessible as soon as it's finished being used. Mm -hmm. You're passing data over and saying, look, please don't read it. And maybe sometimes we just need to respect the contract because the, the language itself doesn't have that type of assurance. And I think Go is not really the language that would provide that. Uh, we need to remember that simplicity is really the key here. And, and it's why everything that we do is so productive, because we're, we're focusing on the things that matter most of the time. Yeah. Cool. Thanks so much. I was uh, reading also that uh, this really interesting um, proposal just opened up about supporting flaky tests. Yes. Now, I hope this isn't uh, an unpopular one because uh, it, as uh, Brad Fitzpatrick, who, who created this, mentioned, it's, it's clearly not something that we should be striving for. Our tests, especially unit tests, should be you know, very specific, repeatable and reliable. But there was an interesting piece uh, of information raised in the proposal that supposedly there's a, a flaky test marker uh, in 79 different places. Uh, in the core uh, code already. So it's clearly not a, a problem only experienced by some of us less experienced developers. Right. But this is, so this is really interesting. So what you'd be able to do is mark one of your tests as potentially flaky. Um, and then the test framework would, would rerun it on, on failure for a certain number of times. I think three was the default that was given. But this, this seems really interesting because sometimes you just can't nail down, you know, an issue. And it, it certainly can save a lot of uh, a wasted effort managing your CI pipeline. I think as long as we're then able to see in a report that there, these marks exist and they should be addressed. I suppose a little bit like to do mm. can be raised by your IDE. So we don't forget about it, but it does feel like it would save a lot of time if we're able to say, ah, it's good enough for now. Uh, mark its technical debt and move on for the next round. Yeah, I have mixed feelings about this one. Like, I definitely see both sides of the argument. I mean, I, I have one of my projects has a very definite flaky test, and I think it's a bug in Gopher.js, which I hope to fix one day. I am one of the maintainers of that project. I just haven't had time, and it's, you know, debugging Gopher.js is, is pretty 
complicated sometimes and it's a timing issue so it only happens once out of 10 runs you know it's it's difficult to debug some of these things i would definitely use this feature to mark those particular tests uh as flaky and so i don't have to manually rerun the one out of 10 times it fails on the other hand if i did that i would probably not be motivated to fix that bug and go for js anymore (laughs) (laughs) so i can i can totally see both sides one thing i would absolutely love is this optional feature in fact i think this should be the main feature uh mentioned in the proposal it says optional support rerunning tests even that are not annotated as flaky after they fail to discover if they are flaky i would totally use that all the time yeah that, absolutely that that would be really useful actually I, f- I find that would be also not just beneficial to a project but to the potential newcomers like if you're trying to get new developers or contributors into a project and they run the unit test to see if their code is working and all of the tests they included and something unrelated breaks it could be really disconcerting and i think that can hold back some people from opening a pull request because they don't want to be the one that broke the test but if it could be marked as potentially flaky then they could probably have confidence that it that it wasn't their fault so that yeah that would be pretty good. One other proposal I think could be great to talk about. This is something I just learned about about a week before the proposal was made. It is the proposal to add ZSTD or ZSTD compression, depending on if you're which side of the ocean you live on, to the standard library. What is ZSTD? Have you heard of ZSTD, Andy? Actually, I have. Yeah, I've not used it myself, but uh, some colleagues have pulled it in. We use it in, inside some of our, our SaaS infrastructure as a way of, of passing around partially built projects and, and the assets that they can create. It does seem to be more efficient and well, like better in most ways. I don't know the details though, but I'm really glad to see that somebody's thinking about bringing it into the standard library of, of the compression algorithms. Yeah, so I heard about it from a friend of mine who's, who's building a, a Go project, and he was interested in uh, HTTP compression, and he wanted to support this in his project, but was asking, you know, do any browsers support this? And apparently the most bleeding-edge version of Chrome might, but it it's amazing for web compression. I mean, just looking at the proposal here, uh, they give some benchmarks of compressing Go 1.20, 1.0. If you use standard gzip compression, it takes five to seven seconds CPU time. If you do gzip minus nine, it's 20 seconds and you save 1.6% of size. Compare that with ZSTD3, it takes 800 milliseconds and it's 5% smaller. Oh, that's incredible. I, I wouldn't mind that improvement in everything in my life, really. That would Please. be quite something. <laughs> If anybody is opposed to this proposal, I hope they have a really, really good reason. Because why wouldn't you want to use something that is faster and smaller that's just like better all around in every way? So Yeah. Absolutely. No, I'm going to go and put my uh, upvote on that one as well. All right. So that rounds it out, I think, for proposals for this week. Uh, but we do have a couple of other things that I think are worth mentioning. So there's an interesting blog post. Uh, it came out a couple of weeks ago by Shane Hansen. Big shout out to Shane. And it's about Seago performance in Go, which is something I think most of us kind of don't think about. I mean, some of us, I mean, I certainly use Seago in some libraries. I've never written Seago myself. Well, I kind of, I've hacked on some Seago. I've never written Seago myself, but it's something I know I use because some of the libraries I have use. I expect you, Andy, have a lot more experience with this uh, because I suspect that Fine has to do a lot more of that low-level stuff than what I, the stuff I usually do. What's your experience with Seago? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's hugely powerful. I love that it exists. It's certainly a big enabler when you're playing around with graphics. I think I mentioned when we chatted before that it's great that Go does have built-in support for manipulating pixels and image compression and those sorts of things. So technically it can handle graphics, but to do those efficiently, to connect to the actual hardware and you know do things like OpenGL acceleration, it's, it's really critical to be able to 
to do that. So in the Find project, yeah, we do a lot of those things, but also there's reaching standard libraries or functionality of the operating system level on macOS and Linux is, is pretty much the only way to go about it. There's, it's great that you can do clever things with syscalls in Windows, but not all platforms have that opportunity. So yes, it's an area that I'm very interested in and performance can be tricky. It's never really got to the point of being a blocker for us. We've been quite surprised about how well optimized it already is. But it's really interesting to see what some people have done to make this possible already. If you look at the, the Go Mobile project, they have this entire set of code for batching operations. And so they, they know well the overhead of jumping between these language barriers and they try to, to group bits of um, requests so that certain uh, sections of graphics are being sent over in one request. And, and it's just like, I don't know, it seems kind of magic to me. They, they batch these requests up and get the responses on one go and then parse them out and, and do the right thing on the other side. So yeah, folks really jump through hoops, but it's very powerful package. Yeah, cool. So this blog post, basically it starts by talking about some of the performance characteristics of Seago. And I think the TLDR is, well, I, I can just read the TLDR. The, the article starts with one. Seago calls take about 40 nanoseconds, about the same time it takes encoding JSON to, make, to parse a single digit integer. On my 20 core machine, Seago call performance scales with core count up to about 16 cores, after which some known contention issues slow things down. So the rest of the article just sort of goes into performance characteristics of Seago and calls and, and uh, when the contention happens and how it's relevant and, and how to deal with this stuff. So um, if you write anything in Seago, like you're probably writing the libraries or the bindings yourself, this was probably a relevant article for you, unless you already know everything in here, of course. But we'll have a link in the show description. Yeah, I think if anybody if anybody thinks they know everything about Seago, that unless they literally wrote it, they're probably wrong. There's so much going on there yeah. to understand. And there's a few gotchas. So I would definitely recommend reading a quality article like this to learn a little bit more. It can definitely be beneficial to your project. Awesome. I don't know really if it's news or not, but I thought it'd be really interesting to raise a little bit of a shenanigan that happened on the Slack, the Gopher Slack server earlier this week. Uh, so just, I think it was two days ago, um, maybe like Wednesday the 13th, uh, there was a bit of a discussion, or less perhaps, of a discussion because the general channel disappeared and the random channel disappeared. And I don't really know that anybody knew what was going on. And it may not have impacted you, especially if you don't use those channels regularly, but like 60, 70,000 people lost their chat history and, and the interaction with people at, uh, at a general level. But then about maybe, I think, 10 hours, 12 hours later, it all came back. And I think, you know, due a lot of shout out here to, to the Slack help desk, but also to the administrators of the Slack Gophers server. It's all back. Everything is there like it was before. The conversations just picked up um, like there was no problem at all. So it's also possible you slept through the entire thing. But that was scary for a minute. I, I don't honestly know what happened either, but maybe we'll hear more later. Yeah, I, I didn't notice anything. I, I am on both channels, but I have them muted because there's just so much noise. And I occasionally go in and ask a question on general. I would not have noticed if it weren't for the fact that there was an announcement about it on the announcements channel, which uh, I don't have muted. And as far as I know, they don't know what caused it. There was speculation that someone might have uh, hacked them. I'm going with aliens. I, I think aliens did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I suppose if we're going to blame it on, on some unknown entity, that would be a pretty good one. They're responsible for so much, and uh, maybe there was just no space to build more pyramids. Probably. <laughs> so let's round out to uh, this week's episode with a, a brief discussion, something that you brought to my attention, Andy, localization. And we spent a few minutes before the show looking for the proposals, and we found a few different proposals about localization. But why don't you tell me why this is important to you and what's uh, what, why this is interesting? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, thanks so much. So. 
As you mentioned, we were chatting about it earlier. I was going through the proposals to see what was happening, and this one just really caught my eye. And then we realized as we were exploring it, there's actually quite a few different proposals for localization and translation support in the uh, tooling, in the language, and in the documentation as well. And this just really caught my attention because it's something that I think actually needs an approved solution or like a recommended way forward. There's so much need for us to be able to present all of these things, not, you know, only in the English language, because as relieved I am that it's almost universal, it's certainly not actually universal, and we shouldn't assume that it is. <laughs> and working as, as I do a lot of the time in app development, it's something that's expected. You know, the language is going to pre be presented um, according to your system settings, and there's not really a standard way to do that. And so there's a proposal, as you mentioned, three or four of them, as to how we could get documentation translated and tooling and potentially actually add that to the standard library. And I think it would be really useful to have a single way that's recommended to do this. There's so many libraries now that you can see it's interesting to a lot of people. And one of the things I noticed in the analytics for the Fine project, actually, is that a very large percentage of people using the code are um, from unexpected countries. Actually, uh, China, I think, is, is one of the top five, if not maybe second place. And of course, they're having to do all of the translation themselves. And there's a lot of tutorials and documentation that's been written over there about how to do translations. And it would be just great if we could have a standardized way to do this so that there's not lots of different efforts pulling in different directions. Is it something that you've got experience with or, or do you have an opinion on how this should be done? I have a little bit of experience. I don't have an opinion, really. So the, one of the oldest proposals, well, of course, link in the show notes from 2015 uh, by Marcel Van Lohusen, I hope I said that right, uh, who at the time, at least, and maybe still is on, uh, is working for Google. And he was for a while working on the X text package. Um, so his proposal is basically to make that part of the standard library. He did a presentation at the Amsterdam Go Meetup, probably around the time he made this proposal, uh, talking about that. And so I played with it a little bit back then. And I've worked on, I think, one project that did localization in Go since then. And they were not using this library. And I, I felt like they should have been because the thing they were doing was sort of a homegrown and had a bunch of warts. Most of the programming I do is sort of back-end focused, infrastructure-related, where localization is less important, just generally, for, for better or for worse, generally, you know, the, the developers and the, the, the DevOps-type people do speak English, or at least read English error messages. But for anything user-facing, like the stuff you work on, no doubt, I think localization is immensely important and, and, and needs, needs some good support. I can't think of a reason why it shouldn't be in the standard library, except that it's complicated, but it's complicated regardless. And unless there's competing ways to do it that are equally valid, I think it should go in the standard library eventually. Yeah, I think that's the tricky thing is there's, there's so many different ways to go about it. And if you look at the libraries that exist, they range hugely in, in complexity mm -hmm. and um, what might I call it? Novelness as well. So like some are building on the, the old get text library from, you know, decades ago that's become standard across a lot of systems. Others are introducing newer, perhaps easier to parse as a human file references. And it's also difficult to know how deep you want to go with this because you could look at it as a simple text substitution for a bit of localization. But then when you get into it, the translation and the complications that come when you're trying to drop in variables, when you're dealing with tenses and the plurality and ordering of words right to left and left to right, it can get really complex really fast. But I wouldn't like to see an API that explodes to show just how complex it is, because that wouldn't be very go at all. Um, but I think, yeah, there's a lot of things to look at here. And the most recent one, I think, was by Sunshine40. I don't know who, don't know their actual name, but that's who they are on, on GitHub. So you could check that out and, and see what they're suggesting. But also, yeah, see other 
localization project. And if you've got a thought actually about how this might fit into application development, I would love to hear because it's something that we're looking at dropping into the next big fine release. So we're, we're trying to solve this in a way that's most likely to be compatible going forward. And I think at this stage, we're going to just have to kind of um, judge or put a finger in the wind and see which way it's going uh, and, and make a step and see how it goes. Awesome. Yeah. I'd love to hear from anybody who's done localization work and go also uh, come by the Cup of Go channel on, on Slack and, and let's have a conversation about it. I'm just curious. Yeah. Yeah. That would, that would be really good, actually. Sorry. I should probably just say I've really enjoyed some of the conversations in the Cup of Go Slack channel over the last week or two. So if, if folk listen to the podcast, but they've not interacted, you should totally swing, swing by, have a chat uh, and put out some some ideas for what you would hear about, what you would like to hear about in future episodes. Very good. Well, I think that wraps it up. Uh, we do have a short uh, informational and ad break coming up, and then we have an interview with Siebes, which was pre-recorded before Shai went on holiday. So you'll get to hear Shai's lovely voice if you're missing it uh, in that interview after the ad break. Thanks, Andy, for joining me today. Oh, thanks so much, Jonathan. I, I've really enjoyed being here and uh, look forward to listening to future episodes. And yeah, maybe we'll catch up at one of those conferences or never know, you might hear me on this channel at some point in the future. Thanks so much. Sounds great. <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Koyeb, a developer-friendly serverless platform to deploy apps globally. No ops, servers, or infrastructure management. It's all taken care of for you. You can run web apps, APIs, event-driven serverless functions, background workers, and even cron jobs. Shai has been using this platform for a while, and he's quite a happy user of it, uh, as you've heard him talk about in previous episodes. We're really happy to have Koyeb uh, as a partner for the show. And I want to do a shout out to a new uh, blog post that Koyeb has published recently about some new capabilities on their platform, uh, metrics-related, observability-related features. All apps running on Koyeb now can benefit from built-in observability of core resources at no additional cost. That means you'll get uh, details about CPU usage, uh, memory, HTTP requests, and other vital statistics about your app with no additional fee, of course, and no additional setup on your part. So head over to Koyeb.com or even better, use the link in the show notes so we get a little bit of a notice uh, that uh, you found us through the show. But check out Koyeb. They're a great platform. We are really pleased to be working with them. Thanks so much, Koyeb. And if you've enjoyed this uh, summary of the week in Gopher News, then don't forget that you can reach us at cupago.dev, that's all one word, or on the Gopher Slack channel, cupago, that's a kebab case with the, the hyphens between. Or you could reach us uh, on email at news at cupago.dev. And also, if you don't mind, please do leave us a review on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. And uh, we'll be back with you next week. Until then. Bye. Jonathan, I hear you have a lot of safe infrastructure in in the Netherlands, bike paths and and raised intersections and stuff like we, that. We do. It's great. It's a it's a bicyclist's dream. Yeah, but doesn't that all this like safe infrastructure, you know, all these safe options slow down cars and worsen their performance? You have to yes. mess with some yes, unsafe options to increase performance. Yeah. If only we had someone who could help us with that. Oh, hey, Siebs. That's definitely a novel intro. Yeah. Um. Yeah. <laughs> everybody meet Siebs. Siebs meet everybody. Uh, Hi, everybody. Today we're going to talk a little bit about performance. Siebs, how about you present yourself? Hi, I'm Siebs. I work for a company called FeatureBase. People who've been around Go for a while might recognize either the previous name, Molecula, or the name before that, Losa, large bitmap index database. We do high-performance database, basically.
Awesome. Welcome to the show. And first of all, we should start with a shout out to uh, our listener and a previous interviewee, Jasharian, right? Because he's the reason, Josh Bleak or Snyder, because he's the reason you're here, because he pointed us to you. And, you know, he gets a priority seating in heaven, right? For, for matchmaking. <laughs> oh, yeah, he, he's cool. I've been following his work sometimes. So thanks, Josh. All right. We talked about profile guide optimization a few times on the show, but before we dive deep into it, what is it in case some of our listeners, you know, missed that episode? So the idea of profile guided optimization is you take a CPU profile or possibly a memory profile, I guess, but usually a CPU profile of the app to figure out where you are spending time to get an idea of which areas need the most optimization. It can be a hint that inlining a particular call site is more valuable than it might look. So basically, it lets you get some of the benefits of those insanely long compile times with a potentially shorter compile time by only doing the extra work where it will actually matter. I think that's the the big central goal. There's also some subtleties and nuances where you can use the specifics of the profile to give you information about specific changes that would be useful. I don't know how much of that Go is doing yet. So a very naive question, uh, why not optimize all the things all the time and inline all the things all the time? But I think it is worth exploring, by the way. Yeah, the reason Go exists is, I mean, the apocryphal story is that Go was developed during C++ compiles, but it really is a major focus of Go to try to reduce compile times, which one of the ways you do that is you don't do as much optimization as the modern high-end C++ compilers do. So you don't want to spend all the time you could optimizing everything because at some point the time you spend compiling becomes enough of a productivity drain to be a problem. I mean, you know, if you've ever worked on a large C project, it can take, you know, half an hour to an hour. There's the famous XKCD comic with how nothing you do counts as slacking if you're waiting for code to compile and, you know, the people sword fighting on chairs. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's compile time. Compile time is definitely one of Go's big strengths. I think it's notable that even when you have PGO as an option, you're not using it in every build, you're using it sometimes. And then, so you typically don't do it in your regular daily development cycle, but when you're doing release builds, you probably want to do it. And if you're reasonably cautious, which you should be, you also do it for the test builds that you are going to be using to validate (laughs) things, because otherwise you're not testing what you're running. And that always makes everyone sad. So why bother with PGO then and not just minus O like with GCC? You know, why don't we just do zero optimization for normal dev work and then set it to like 12 for production work it goes all the way to 11 i don't know how far it goes. yeah uh, i think theoretically it's got like an 06 i've not, anything past 02 is usually under tested and can be a little dodgy um okay. well, so <laughs> the basic so it's my is, code so <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> the the basic issue is you know the the perform there's not necessarily a big performance advantage to it and also in some cases knowing how heavy a call site is gives you a reason to prefer one answer over another like if you're inlining functions if you have you know 
5,000 call sites, and 4,995 of them are hit twice during the lifespan of the program. Inlining a large function at all of those points is just going to be expensive. It's actually going to potentially make your program slower. It's certainly going to be larger. It's not cache-friendly and so on. But then those other five site call sites, there are some performance advantages you get from the inlining. And if you are hitting them you know, a million times a second, those handful of instructions start mattering and you may get benefits from it. So it's useful to know how heavily something is called when deciding which way to optimize it. it, it there isn't just a single best optimization, it turns out. Right. And, and see, that, that's kind of what I assumed the whole PGO thing was about, was like choosing which optimization to use. So I, I'm actually, it makes perfect sense, but I hadn't considered the idea that a, lot, a large part of it was just choosing whether to optimize at all in some cases, the trade-off being compile time versus performance rather than being two different performance profiles. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably some of both. I am not familiar with the details of the Go compiler's performance optimizations here. I know Go is historically just not very optimized. Like I've seen estimates that I think I've seen estimates of about 25% performance improvement potentially possible with really good compiler that just the Go compiler isn't doing, but the trade-off is, you know, I can run Go build and just get my prompt back for the most part, except on really large mm-hmm. things. And even on large mm-hmm. things, you know, in Go, I get frustrated if a build takes 10 seconds. And yeah. in C, I would like type make and I would just go do something else. There was no point in waiting for the build. Yeah, if it came back in 10 seconds, it mean you ran it in the wrong directory, right? Ran yeah, it in pretty the much. Hello World one. One question, you know, that comes up a lot with PGO, at least I saw in, you know, in various like Reddit and whatever, uh, it's actually more of a statistics question than I guess a programming question. But you said at your current company working on, you know, ultra low latency databases or something like that, Pretty right? much. Low latency, high, high per throughput. Um, we tend not to look impressive until you have a few hundred million records. So that's exactly my uh, leads to my point. You probably have different users of your mm-hmm. product with really different use patterns, mm-hmm. usage patterns, right? One of them constantly writing and reading as it's using your DB as sort of a rest stop pit stop for analytics in a message queue. And the other one writing all day and then reading everything at once during the night while they make the reports. And I guess the the PGO, you know, the, the profiles themselves look different for different users. Yeah. How do you, like, do you imagine yourself at some scale creating a binary for uh, report people and creating a different binary for uh, streaming people just based on the profile? Unless the difference turned out to be huge, probably not. Like, we might try it once as an experiment, but what we'd probably do is combine the profiles, because the Go profile format lets you combine profiles pretty easily, and use a single combined profile that represents multiple common workloads and say, hey, let's, let's get something that's good for all of these. So trying to find, like, the common denominator. Yeah, find the things that are key points in everything, and there are certainly a bunch of those like just from looking at existing profiles i know there are specific points that are quite clearly pain points where we would want more attention given or possibly we just want to rewrite something the best answer for performance is always that if you can avoid doing the work that is better than doing it faster uh the joke i have is the best runtime is o of zero which i mean that's not mathematically valid but people sort of know what i mean Actually, that leads me up nicely to our next question. 
is it worth like sweating about these details at all at this point? You know, I'm not running things like builds, for example, on my machine anymore. I'm running them in the cloud. I can just get 64 cores, 64 gig of, of RAM easily. And the cloud's basically free with Koyab anyway, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to say it. I don't want to say it, but um, this is not sponsored by Seeds or Seeds Company. <laughs> they just sponsor our show. Uh, Koyab just sponsored our show. But honestly, like, I've heard a lot of takes both on the side of we forgot doing performance is the most important thing every time and we worried about like iteration speed or clean code or stuff like that. There are definitely very heated debates online about that. And on the other hand, there are people who are just like, yeah, I wrote something, ship it. I will never optimize anything. I'll just get more and more resources until I'm big enough. And if my business is big enough to fail, then I can just rewrite the whole thing and do it right this time. And, you know, being someone who in the Go community contributes a lot to performance and performance related discussions, um, I'm interested in your take on it. Oh boy, that that is definitely there's a lot going on there. I mean, I definitely do feel like there's a lot of room for people to pay more attention to performance than they do. I think the thing that really brought it home to me was one time I was just watching a CPU meter and I was running, I think, Discord, you know, one of the electron-based chat programs. And I just sort of wiggled my mouse for a bit and my CPU went up to about 15%. Nothing that's happening here justifies using even 1% of that CPU. There's nothing going on. What about all the blockchain mining and, and tracking? <laughs> yeah, exactly. put, put some respect on all the on all the malware. Yeah. So I think there's a couple of tiers of performance. There's a classic law of optimization, which is that the basic advice is don't do it. And then there's the special advice, experts only, don't do it yet. And I think there's a couple of kinds of optimization. Like there's there's the fiddly little details, fancy stuff, using unsafe and so on. And that stuff, I think, advice I'll give most people is don't. And if you need to do it, you'll probably be able to tell. Like ask questions like, you know, is the cost of this CPU time larger than the cost of hiring me? Because it, there will come a point where there, if you're looking at something big enough where, yeah, a 5% performance difference will make more of a difference than it costs to employ the person to make that 5% difference. The rest of the time, don't do that because that code is harder to maintain and maintenance and iteration time really are very important, especially for the other kind of performance work, which is doing a design at a high level where things work well, where things don't need to do extra work. Like a, one of my favorite examples is in GhostedLib, the io.reader type, that io.reader, the read function, you give it the slice to read into, it does not allocate storage. And that single choice has made more of a performance difference in more Go programs than anything most of us will ever do. That has is, you know, a factor of 10 or 50 or something performance improvement in reads for everyone forever. Getting things like that right is absolutely worth the time and thought up front if you know that something is going to be in a critical path. And well, io.reader is in a lot of critical paths. What you just said reminds me of the proposal we just talked about in the first part of the show about adding the append text and append binary interfaces or, or methods to the encoding uh, package. Uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at that one yet. I haven't. I know we did a, got an append style printf mod version a while back because format.sprintf is allocating and it's very expensive and I 
believe I was the one who actually wrote the proposal for we should have an append method that's like f printf, but you give it a buffer and it appends to that buffer. And that raises an interesting semantics question, which is what if the buffer's not big enough? Do you want to then cause the allocation or do you want to truncate? And I actually don't remember what they did because obviously in the real use cases for this where it's important, you will be very sure that that doesn't happen. So it almost doesn't matter to you as a programmer which way it goes. But appending writes to a buffer is a huge improvement in many cases over allocation. And again, sprintf is fine for most purposes. It's it's efficient to use. It's, it's going to potentially have performance issues, but unless it's in the hot path and it's just chewing up a ton of time and it's showing up in profiles, that's fine. It like I've replaced sprintf things with carefully written writing into buffers stuff, but I've only done it because, you know, I got a profile back in which one particular routine was 25% of CPU time. And at that point, okay, yeah, I need to fix this. It's clearly causing a problem. But, you know, if you're writing a test case and you want to do a little loop where you go through 10 variants calling t.run with a name and you're using sprintf to allocate the name, you just don't care. Spending the time to, you know, make a buffer and overwrite the buffer, that's that's a waste of your time. It's not going to make your program meaningfully faster. Your test case saving 10 allocations total is not important. So looking at, again, important versus not important, one thing it's worth remembering, I think a lot of the people working on this kind of stuff, deeply enjoy it. At least I know from um, my years of working in low level. You mentioned you started in, in low level languages like C, right? You have a background in the committee even. So I got super into C when I started out. Um, C was my first programming language and I didn't actually formally learn C. What happened was I was playing this game called Hack. It was one of the early roguelikes. So, you know, at sign, character graphics moving around the screen. And one day my dad brought home a printout of the source code and neglected to tell me that like programming languages are a specialized thing. So he just said, this is what that this is that program. And I said, oh, is it? And started reading it. It turns out you're, that's not how you're supposed to learn programming languages. <laughs> I think that's exactly how you're supposed to learn programming languages. That's such a cool origin story. Yeah, I got super into C. And then I, I had, you know, I asked, you know, my first question of, you know, how do you get a character without waiting for the user to hit return? And someone explained, well, you can't. There's no standard C way that's implementation specific. And the idea that there was a distinction between what happens to work and what is guaranteed to work was the coolest thing ever. Um, you'll be amazed to know that I was in my 30s before I was diagnosed autistic. So I just thought this was the coolest thing. And I found out you could just join the standards committee. You do not need, like, I, when I say I was on the standards committee, people usually hear my employer was on the standards committee. No, no, I personally joined the standards committee. I thought it would be fun. I went to meetings for about 10 years and it was in fact really fun for me. I think it might not be for everyone, but I had a lot of fun. I remember at one meeting we were like, yeah, well, it's not a new C standard without a new definition for the word static. We did in fact <laughs> add a new meaning for static in C99. So I was on the standards committee and I really enjoyed the formalization and standardization aspect of programming. And I also do enjoy performance work. And it's sort of funny because, of course, a lot of the time in performance work, what you're doing is carefully looking at the spec and then saying, 
going, okay, well, that's nice, but I'm not doing it now. Yeah, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is not useful for my use case. Yeah, just sometimes you want to do exactly a thing that you know will work on this CPU and you don't actually care about theoretical correctness. Although I will say people who get careless about theoretical correctness very often get badly burned by it. I remember getting in a huge flame war with someone about their clever trick to detect endianness with type punning. And their clever trick to detect endianness using type punning was a great trick until 64-bit CPUs showed up and it just completely failed to work because they had assumed that they knew what size everything was going to be forever and they were wrong i really can you know the the people who sweat this uh, sort of stuff and and enjoy it are pretty rare you, you see that's why i think in the community you usually see some topics bring everyone in but some topics have like very specific clusters of people getting excited about them again yeah again. performance is a very weird subfield someone i know had this great quote that performance is the only field in which it's credibly possible that you will get a thousand x performance increase and that's uh, good and it's also credible for it to be genuinely impressive to get a one percent performance increase and for people to th- say wow that's amazing i didn't know you could do that but mm-hmm. these are both experiences i've had and i've had the day where you know i put in a full solid day and I made something 5% faster and I felt like this was really good. I know that I'm very close to the limits. That 5% is probably all I can get. And I've had the days where I did something and it came out that I had removed 99.97% of runtime for a particular workload. And that also felt good, but it's a different feeling, even though, I mean, you know, you'd think that that would just be obviously way better, but no, the 5% one was much more impressive and also so made more of a difference overall because that was much heavier hit use case. The other one sort of specialized. That's super interesting distinction. I've definitely done that before, especially with database queries. It's just a little bit different field, but you get the same sort of feeling, you know, where you you add an index or you change the order of a join or something, and suddenly it's ten thousand times faster, and it feels yeah. good. But it, it makes you kind of kick yourself, like, what was I doing that was so stupid to begin with? What was I thinking? <laughs> I had one of those once where there was a. A database query that had a caching layer in front of it. And, you know, people were talking about increasing the timeout on the cache because, you know, this query would take 47 seconds to run. And then if you got more than a couple of them, they would start taking five minutes and up and they'd time out. So I added an index and it went to about 10 milliseconds. And what's amazing to me is that the index wasn't there first. Like, why would you add the caching layer before the index? And just as a cool yeah. thing to for anyone who needs to know this, in Postgres JSON fields, it has a special JSON field format. You can do an index on the result of a JSON lookup into those things. Uh, Postgres does covering indexes where it actually resolves the computation. So you can do a, an index on a lookup into a JSON field, and it will use the index and be much, much, much faster because it's not, you know, actually going through extracting data from this complex data structure right right sorry i I get excited about this stuff you can tell (laughs) and the you know sort of the flip side of of this topic um people who naturally get excited about uh, this sort of performance work is how do you let's say i work for a company that obviously has some go code this is relevant probably for almost anyone listening right now most of the people you know, you'd work with, unless there's some obvious 
business issue about performance don't they don't get excited about this stuff right some of them get excited about shipping stuff or whatever what are some cool resources or you know just fun ideas you've you've explored in the past to get people into performance something i can show them that will give them this you know their first taste of that five five percent performance increase to get them hooked that's an interesting question. So I think algorithmic runtime improvements are much easier to get people interested by. Like you show them the difference between, say, a naive sort and a reasonably good sort algorithm or something. And back in would have been the 70s or 80s, there was a person I know who had a CS prof who had a demo, which was doing the same sort on a TRS-80, which is a early 8-bit microcomputer and on a Cray supercomputer and having the TRS-80 win because it was using an N log N sort and the supercomputer was using an N squared sort. So, you know, the tiny machine using the floppy drive and with like, I think 16 or 64K of memory absolutely smoked this, you know, couple million dollar machine. I think this was one of the Crays where they had they doubled all the circuits so that it didn't matter which way a bit was flipped. The power consumption was the same so that the power supply just had a fixed resistive load. It did not vary with workload in any way, which is like just this insane magic. They had like special little loops in some of the wires internally to make sure that the signal lengths were the same for the speed of light reasons. And this, you know, $90 machine you get at Radio Shack was would utterly smoke it on a sort because it was using a good algorithm. And I think some people will just not care. And I think the most important thing to do is recognize that if it's not exciting to them, they're never going to probably find it rewarding and they aren't going to want to do it. And it's probably better to let them focus on something else because if you force them into the performance stuff, they're going to be unhappy and they're not necessarily going to be good at it. And it can be better to just let them find the thing that they love doing and be excited about that. That's that's totally fair. Yeah. I'd like to expand on that a little bit because um, I, I, I think... A lot of people just ignore performance, and some do it unintentionally because they don't know any better. Some do it intentionally because they've heard the advice, premature optimization is the root of all evil. Um, but I, I mean, I don't know. I, I'd like your opinion. I, I feel like there has to be a balance somewhere. Like, we don't want to just completely ignore it, but we don't want to go too far and you know nitpick every pull request to death because, oh, this loop could be you know two milliseconds faster. What advice can you offer to our listeners who, who maybe struggle with this? How do you find that balance? I think Amdahl's Law is the thing I would point at, and Amdahl's Law, I'm going to bangle it if I try to quote it, but the basic premise is the most important performance improvement you can get by making something faster is you can remove the time it currently takes. Like if something takes half of your runtime, you can be twice as fast by fixing it, but you can't get more than twice as fast because it's still only half the runtime. If something is one or 2% of your runtime, nothing you do to it can ever make more than a one or 2% difference in anything. And that suggests maybe it's not a great place to focus your attention when you're doing optimization. So, and then the one additional complexity is in Go, the largest performance costs are nearly always garbage collector overhead that you aren't thinking about directly. And so it turns out that the CPU profile may not be as valuable to you as the memory profile, looking at where the allocations happen because the garbage collector workload gets spread out over everything. And it's sort of hard to see in the profile that this is why a given chunk of code is so expensive to run. 
I think one tip that does work really well in because of Go and specifically in Go is that the tooling around performance is so good right now. Like, you know, running profiles is very simple. Exposing profiles, just a few lines of like importing HTTP prof and, and scraping them, super easy. Um, I think one thing you can do with Go is people are, are incentivized to work on stuff if they're visual, if they're obvious. Uh, so at- attaching the profile results to every test run in the same way you put in the failed test cases, which uh, APIs became slower by more than 10% or stuff like that, that can make people care about it, not in the specialized, not in the like, you know, I'm on the C committee and I care about the, <laughs> like uh, performance since 1999, uh, but more in the sense that, oh, this is part of my routine in the same way that I care about the code working in the same way that I care about the code being well written and, and, and easy to read in the same way that I care about coming into work each day and, and, and looking all right. I care about my code not being too slow. And because the Go tooling is so nice, this is something you can integrate pretty easily into your workflows. Yeah, the tooling is definitely very friendly there. I mean, it does have some weaknesses. Occasionally, there's cases where the default profiling tools are not as reliable as I would like them to be, but they're still pretty good. I do want to say, though, one caveat with, you know, it is just a few lines of code to add those endpoints. But also, if you do that, do not do that in production systems. Or if you do, make sure you are doing it on a different listener than your normal main listener. Because otherwise, you've just exposed Go routine stacks to everyone in the world. And um, like performance is one of those things you don't care about until you suddenly need to. Security, you should probably always be at least a little bit thinking about because um, if you don't, you get really bad results. Yeah. It's uh, risk versus uh, impact. And the impact is, is, is uh, the magnitude is, is really, really high. Um, as we're coming into a close here, what do you want to shout out? Where can people find you? What are you working on? Where where could you use our listeners' uh, likes and shares? I'm active on the Gopher Slack. I forget who runs it, but there's a sort of official Gopher community Slack. I'm mostly active in the performance channel. Um, very proud of the fact that the Go community Slack has a Siebs no emoji. I, I feel like I learned <laughs> that. We, we just recently got... Uh, you know, our show graduated to having the icon also be an emoji. So we really feel you. It's it's, it's a real like seal of approval from uh, Bill and the guys, right? Yeah. But yeah, you're one of us. <laughs> That's great. Well, we usually have uh, a couple of questions. We ask everybody who come on to interview uh, and we're just going to jump into them. Gun to your head. You have to remove something from Go, a feature, a library, anything. What are you taking out? Oh, that's that's tough. Um, okay, I think the ability to shadow variables. I think, like, I know it's so useful so often, but it is also the cause of so many weird unintended bugs. I sort of feel like just saying, no, actually, you're not allowed. You cannot declare a thing that has a name that's already in scope when you declare it. I think that would honestly, it would hurt. But I think that once it was done hurting and once you'd fixed all the code, especially the like all the nested loops that declare error at every level, Mm -hmm. I think once you fixed that, there would be so many fewer bugs. I like it. I agree. On the other side, suppose you had the uh, freedom to wave a magic wand and add a feature to go. What would it be? I mean, coroutines, definitely coroutines. I know that they're already sort of being worked on with the... um, the range iterator stuff, but the ability to have a thing that, you know, to write a loop 
and then you know hand control to and from that loop without the channel passing overhead that it, I've had that in other languages like Lua has coroutines and it just makes it so much easier to clearly write something that you know something like an iterator because an iterator changes from this incredibly complicated thing that's keeping track of its state to you just write the loop you would write if you were doing the iteration in your loop and then in the middle of it you have the word yield once and you're done you're, you've written an iterator and I, I've had to re-implement that in fancy wrappers with like channels or, or whatever so many times. And it's, it's always sort of frustrating. Yeah, that's why there's a lot of like packages that try to do it uh, generically, but all of them have this like weird little caveats here, weird little caveats there. I also ended up implementing the sort of stuff myself. Yeah, and I think the the new range stuff proposal that they're working on where you can define an iterator and then use it in range loops, that will help a lot and get us a lot of the way there. But then at some level, the compiler has to jump in and actually do some magic. But I think the idea is to basically have a thing where you have a situation that's similar to having two Go routines that are communicating over channels, except Instead of the full channel locking mechanism, you just have a transfer of control and switch of your stack and CPU state, which is way cheaper than a channel op. Awesome. Have you seen the uh, the article that Russ Cox wrote about uh, the potential for coroutines in Go? Yeah, yeah, I'm super hyped. I like Ru- Russ's blogging. He he is always a fascinating person to read. And actually, um, he did a thing recently on the C standard and C compilers and how they are handling undefined behavior. And I mean, it's it's pretty harshly critical, but honestly, I think mm-hmm. he's right. And yeah. I, I know we I, this came by on the C committee standards mailing list and people were like, eh. but no, mm-hmm. I think he's right. I think it, his description of if you're going to uh, cross an eight lane highway blindfolded, you want to do it as fast as possible is just a really good description of some of the attitude that has arisen over the years. <laughs> like the undefined behavior thing has absolutely become a potential flaw in C. And I think in particular, the the reason this bothers me is, in practice, C has become sort of the choice implementation language for other languages, like Python is written in C. And I think that if you are going to be the language that people use for kernels and for other programming languages, it's really important for you to be as unsurprising as possible. And I think C has, one way or another, C has become a lot more surprising to people over the years. And I don't think that has been great for it. Well, Seebs, thank you for coming on. It's been a lot of fun. I, th- I feel like Shai and I could talk for another hour or two if we had time, but oh, we yeah. don't want to bore our listeners. We promise them a short uh, program every week. So yeah. I just want to thank you again for coming on and, and sharing some of your wisdom and your insights. All right. Well, thanks, thanks a lot. It was very fun. All right. See you all next week.